Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite players from Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, James Sue. Today we're talking to the one and only Emma Handy. Emma is a magic writer, coach, and all-around awesome personality. Whether you're a fan of hers or someone new to her work, I think you'll come out of it with more respect for her journey. This is part one of two. The interview's pretty long, so I've broken it up into two parts. And before we go any further, I need to warn you, this conversation is pretty dark. There is some serious stuff in here. There are topics about self-harm, suicide, taking drugs, and more. We also use some pretty strong language from time to time. So if you're easily offended, I urge you to proceed with caution. Having said that, it's one of the most personal interviews that Emma's ever done on air. This is what it's all about. It's all about getting to know the people that play the game at a level that's never been explored before. Emma and I are really glad to have had this conversation, and we're excited to share this with you. And one more thing. I've started a Patreon page at patreon.com slash jamessue, J-A-M-E-S-H-S-U. Instead of bombarding you with advertisements, I've started this page with the hopes of recouping some of my podcasting costs. This podcast is definitely a labor of love for me, and your support will allow me to keep it going. I have some awesome benefits on Patreon, and I've also set up some goals. Now, this is the first time I've done something like this, so I'd really appreciate it if you would even consider giving to the cause. Please take two seconds, go to patreon.com slash jamessue, and see what it's all about. The rest is up to you. Okay, let's get into it. This is Humans of Magic with Emma Handy. Hey, Emma, how's it going? Oh, I can't complain too awful much. Just uh, after work, sleeping up a deck for a Grand Prix in a couple of weeks. What format GP is it? It is standard. So I've picked out the deck already. The deck I'm playing is the Mono Blue Paradoxical Outcome deck with uh, Psy Master Thopterist as kind of the glue that holds everything together. Uh, I tried it out on a whim on Moto and decided that it was so good I just wanted to book a flight to the next standard Grand Prix I could go to. And I don't have my list finalized, but I, you know, with the archetypes, since it's a combo deck, they're really, like, only, like, eight-ish flex slots. Fifty-two of the cards are kind of set in the stone. Right. And do you enjoy standard right now? I assume that you play it quite a bit and you stream standard as well, right? Yeah, uh, I mostly stick to modern, but I think standard's a lot of fun right now. It's it's very it's quite diverse. I mean, you know, obviously Goblin Chain Whirler's kind of miserable sometimes, but the format's adjusted to the point where Chain Whirler isn't as oppressive as it used to be, just because everyone's so prepared for it. And once you once we're at this point, I think the format really really gets a lot more fun. You play a lot of modern. You stream modern. Why is modern? It seems to be your favorite format. I've seen you write quite a lot about it. And so I'm wondering why why that is. So there are a couple reasons. I write about it a lot because it gets, you know, not to be too nitty gritty about it, but it's what gets the most clicks. And the I, I primarily play on the SCG tour, which kind of leans towards modern because those events have the highest attendance among anything that the company does on the SCG tour. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? You're kind of tailoring to the audience that and what they're looking for. Yeah, exactly. I, I kind of just like magic, and short of it being a crappy format, I'm probably going to enjoy whatever I'm doing, almost no matter what it is, just because it's magic. And it just so happens that modern is the thing that, you know, there's kind of a point where you have to look at the numbers of things, and modern draws the best numbers, so that's the thing I'm going to do the most. This is kind of a tangent, but because I'm such a part-time Magic player and I love the Legacy format, I've always enjoyed your your record and your writing and your content related to Delver, like Blue Red Delver, the Thunderous Wrath and all that stuff. That was, uh, I really enjoyed that stuff, but I know that Lim- Legacy has quite a limited audience, right? So it's, it's not something that you do as often. Exactly. There's only, you know, 
it, because I tend to be the legacy player in the team trios, uh, teams that I play on, I am quote unquote lucky enough to play maybe one legacy tournament a month to every six weeks. So with that, even as immersed as I am in Magic, that's how much I get to play the format. So how how invested can the average player be? Yeah, that actually, that says a lot about Legacy. It's like when you're a full-time Magic player, you still only play it once a month if you're lucky, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I play a bunch on Magic Online, but that's not what gets people interested in the game, right? Like, other than Momer Basic, I don't think there's been a format that people played on Magic Online in first and then got super excited about it. It's usually people get excited about something on paper and then want more of it, so they turn to Magic Online. Emma, there's so many topics that I want to ask you about today. And I thought that maybe we could just start off with something really simple because we had just talked about magic and you're a pretty well-known magic personality and you put yourself out there, like whether it's your tweets or your writing and you have quite the collection of fans. But I wanted to start off by just asking you, what's something that what's one thing that people may not know about you uh that they may not know just from reading your content or seeing you play on camera um i don't know i guess it depends how how dark we want to get right like i think the the fun thing to say is that i'm really really well versed in music i um when I was in high school, I played in a lot of rock bands. I can play drums, guitar, bass, piano, upright bass, and was a singer for a while. Um, and the dark thing is that I just think I'm a lot sadder um, in person than I am on the internet, but that stuff is not, not something you want to perpetuate. You kind of want to try to put good in so you get good out, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, totally. And I also think that we, we often have a, whether consciously or unconsciously, we have a persona that we have online that is sometimes different from the person that we, we are in private life. Exactly. I, uh, I actually have a private Facebook and a public Facebook. And the, the way I tend to phrase it around people is my middle name's Catherine and my Facebook isn't that secret anymore. But the private one is Emma Catherine and the public one is Emma Handy. And there is a a pretty stark contrast between Emma Handy and Emma Catherine. Do you see it almost like two aspects of your personality or it's just more like there's a an exaggerated or or high, highlighted version of Emma that's public versus private? I think a lot of it is I think I'm fairly good at marketing in general, especially marketing myself. I, you know, it I always joke, it's not my magic results that have gotten me to where I am today, right? It's that I can write fairly well and I'm also fairly charismatic, but that isn't necessarily who I always want to be, but I think it is important in a lot of ways to try to be that, be my best self when, in, when under the public eye. I think that might be the best way to phrase it. The fact is, the way the world works, at least in my perhaps cynical understanding is that people don't want to associate or follow somebody that is really, that makes them feel negative all the time, right? Like they want to follow somebody that potentially inspires them and makes them feel good or makes them want to play magic. That, that's how I see it. I don't know if you, you feel the same. Yeah, I completely agree with that. People don't go, especially to something like magic, which is a hobby, people don't go to their hobby to feel upset or to feel bad. They go to kind of escape and feel good. And sometimes it's living vicariously through someone else. Sometimes it's just wanting to go, wow, I could get to that point someday because someone else has gotten there or you know, this person is going to help me feel better about something or be better at something and I think that is more important than than just making people feel worse. Oh, for sure. I had no idea that you were such a such a talented person in terms of knowing all these instruments and playing music. How did you start off with that? Was it like your parents giving you getting you into music or was it something that you were just you always had an interest in? 
So, um, I actually wasn't that interested in music until later in middle school. I hung out, well, I didn't hang out that much, but the people who were closest to being my friends, I would say, like the acquaintance pluses, uh, were mostly band kids, and I didn't play anything, but then I got Guitar Hero and wanted to try to um, play a couple of the songs because I really liked them, and I had pretty good hand-eye coordination. I could type, you know, 110, 120 words a minute when I was 13, 14 and decided, you know, let's try out guitar. And then I decided to, I liked bass more. I just liked finger picking. I liked the feel of the strings more. I liked the feel of the bass. And then that made me want to try to learn upright bass. And then that's such a rhythmic instrument. I ended up kind of moving over to drums and learning that as well. And finally, I just kind of learned piano because at that point I knew enough about music theory to kind of fudge it a little bit. You know, I'm not a great pianist or anything, but I can sit and play like first, third, fifth chords on the piano and I can do some arpeggiating. I don't know if that's actually the correct verbiage for that, but, um, and then finally I played in enough bands where I either had to fill in on vocals because the singer was sick or was actually just a singer in a couple of bands because, you know, learn enough about music you can at least kind of do like punk rock songs even if you aren't very good at holding a pitch you just scream into a mic and teenagers go crazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that says a lot about punk rock in general but i'll, I'll reserve my uh music elitism for another day uh <laughs> I, I don't think it's a bad thing i think a lot of it is just conveying emotion over musical prowess and i don't think that's wrong i just think it's a different way of doing things it is interesting that you mentioned kind of going from one instrument to the other, because I feel like maybe the way you described it, you might be downplaying a little bit, but I think it's actually quite difficult for someone to do that. And you had mentioned like having dexterity through video games and Guitar Hero and things like that. But there's also kind of a mindset thing there too, in my opinion, which is you are not content with just bass. Like you wanted to explore, okay, let's dabble in guitar, piano and different things. So. Is that always something that's kind of been part of your personality is like dabbling in different things and trying new things out? Because I imagine that it's not easy for a lot of people to do that. So a lot of it is I can't kind of do something. I have a very addictive personality and I think this is pretty common against a lot of gr amongst a lot of grinders. I imagine you hear this from most people you have on your show. I can't I can't just play some magic. I can't just, like, if I were to quit and then I couldn't just come back for a draft and enjoy the draft and then not play anymore. I would come back for a draft and then I'd go, wow, that was, I liked this card. I got to build a deck for FNM and then I got to go to the IQ and then I got to go to the Open and then I got to go to the Grand Prix and then I got to try to qualify for the Pro Tour. Music was very similar where it's like, all right, I've kind of learned how to play some songs on guitar and the basic chords and you know, I, that bass that that person is playing, it looks like they're enjoying it. I should try to learn bass because that's something I could, that could influence my songwriting. And, you know, I already kind of know this other rhythmic thing and I'm pretty coordinated. So I'll bet I can mess around on the drums enough until I just know how to play it. And that will help with my syncopation as a bass player. And, you know, I want to write piano interludes, but I need to be able to play them in order to record them. So I guess I should learn to play the piano. That makes sense. And do you see these things as being just a, you have an addictive, addictive personality and it's interesting to you, or do you see it as a challenge or do you see it as a combination? Uh, I think I just have an addictive personality. <laughs> I, um, ironically, I'm not nearly as competitive as most people would assume. I, I want to be the best person I can be. And if that's not better than other people, that's fine with me. Um, I, I, all I can be is my best, right? I, like in magic, for example, I'm never going to be John Finkel. I'm never going to invest enough time. I'm never going to reach that peak and be better than John Finkel. And that kind of goes everywhere else in, in my life, right? Like in, on a bass playing, I'm never going to be a Billy Sheehan, a Victor Wooten, et cetera. In drumming, I'm never going to be a Mike Portnoy. I'm not going to be a Neil Peart. I could list musicians for a long time, 
but I, I was content or am content just being the best person that I can be at the things I do. But I do push myself to try and be the best I can be at the things I do. That's a great mindset because you just want to be a better person today than you were yesterday kind of thing, right? Exactly. Exactly. Nail on the head. Emma, I always like to start off by going back in time. Can you just briefly start by telling me where you grew up? Tell me a little bit about your parents. Basically, anything that you want to tell me about the earliest days of your life from when you can remember. Okay, sure. So I was born in Orlando, Florida, uh, specifically Altamont Springs and lived in Sanford for anyone who's been around Central Florida very much. Um, I moved to Western North Carolina, specifically Asheville, when I was five or six. Um, I don't remember a whole lot about Orlando, but because I was younger at the time, my internal temperature was kind of set to Orlando's weather. So it's kind of funny, I'll be comfortable up until about 90 degrees, but it gets down to 65 and I'm ready to bust out the bubble coats and pumpkin spice, so to speak. I get cold very easily. Um, but in Asheville, it's, uh, despite being in the Southeast, it's actually a pretty, uh, liberal city, uh, by American standards. And, uh, I grew up there and lived there until I was 25. Uh, while I was there, I went to school. I didn't really go to college. I started to sign up for classes, realized I didn't actually like the things I was good at and didn't want to sink myself into a bunch of debt for the sake of something I would hate. So I just went into working instead. Um, I worked in construction for a little while, actually. Um, I don't really look at now, but I was bulkier for a while. A uh, little under 200 pounds, I think, was the heaviest I ever was. But then I worked at a call center, um, specifically as a manager for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of New Jersey, the Medicare sector. I answered a lot of health insurance questions, dealt a lot with that, trained a bunch of people on Medicare-related health insurance. And then I started grinding magic after I started working at a card store in 2014 and really put my nose to the grind in 2016. As far as family, I have a biological mother and biological father who were both in the picture for a very long time. They divorced when I was in the fifth grade. I've had two stepmothers and one stepfather. My relationship with my biological father is not great. Uh, for anyone who does not know who I am that is listening to your cast, I'm transgender. And for reasons related to my transition, uh, I am no longer on speaking terms with my father's side of the family. And um, my mother's side and my stepfather are both amazing. They've been nothing but wonderful to me. And in a lot of respects, my stepfather is <laughs> honestly my dad and not just because of the the bad situation with my biological father he just taught me a lot about you know growing up how to drive how to handle myself in public how to you know get a job yeah he, uh, he is a great man I have th two biological sisters and one stepsister they're all younger than me they're all fantastic. One of them is really into animals. One of them is currently a guard at Guantanamo Bay. And another one is a rising comedian. Oh, very interesting. So just trying to unpack that a little bit, which family member are you the closest with now? Is it your mother or your step stepdad or uh, maybe one of your siblings? So that's a little bit tough. Um, if I had to rank them I am, mm, so this feels bad because it feels like I'm picking a favorite family member and that's not the case. I'm, I am probably the closest with my biological mother and my two biological sisters. Um, the, the, I'm close with all of them for different reasons. I, uh, I was kind of a party animal growing up. And by that, I mean, I, I, I've done some bad stuff and, um, it's not great. I started drinking when I was like 14. And um, 
as a result, I can relate with one of my sisters who also kind of likes to party a little bit. I don't think it's at the same level. But then the sister I'm the closest in age to is also kind of the sibling that I quote unquote grew up with the most. I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense, but we just shared a lot of similar experiences because we were usually in the same schools and everything. And my mom and I just get really catty and I'll curl up on the couch and like watch, you know, stupid movies. And while it's playing, just talk gossip about family and stuff. And that's really nice. So I'm, I'm quite close with those three, but all in, all in different ways. That, that's cool. And you, you kind of talked about from being born to moving and then uh, getting jobs. But if I can retrace a little bit, sure. what was your childhood like? Basically from between when you were five, let's say between the ages of five and 15, what was it like in your area growing up, going to school? Can you describe a little bit of that? Sure. So that's roughly kindergarten to eighth grade-ish. Um, I, went to, I went to two different elementary schools because my family moved after the first grade or so. Um, and th that was all fairly uneventful. Uh, I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. I had a couple of them that I was just... I excelled a lot in elementary school. I just picked up on basic arithmetic very quickly and was kind of labeled as gifted as a result of that. I also read Harry Potter books and I swear that was like the late 90s thing that made teachers think they were going to have the next Stephen Hawking as if their kid could read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. But <laughs> then in middle school, I lost most of my friends from elementary school because we just had different classes. And instead of really recouping those friends, I just kind of got further into Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic. I played Yu-Gi-Oh! before I played Magic. And I'm, I'm, so I have a friend named Randy, and I've been friends with Randy since I was in uh, probably like 12. But other than him, I didn't really have any friends until the very end of middle school. So I kind of just got deeper and deeper into cards and did that with my free time instead of other things. What about the music stuff? Because you got into music. Did you make friends through that channel as well? Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I kind of suspect that was why I got into music. There were a lot of reasons, but um, a one of the big reasons is it just was something my I mentioned the acquaintance plus thing it was more like the people I sat at tables with in my classes in middle school and early high school would play instruments and we're starting to get into metal you know system of a down and disturbed and stuff that was if we're being honest pretty easy to just pick up a guitar and learn to play their songs in a couple of weeks lots of uh bar chords which are kind of just placing your finger flat against three strings if the guitar is tuned for it which most were for that era of hard rock and it was a way to to have people to talk to when you started playing Yu-Gi-Oh what was that like was it your friend Randy that you started playing with I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how you first encountered card stores and in your area and how you got into that because I I remember doing a little bit of research on you and you were playing Yu-Gi-Oh! competitively as well, right? So how did you kind of make that initial transition into the game and what was that like? So this is kind of its own little timeline that goes further than the... I guess it doesn't go completely further, but... So I started with um, Pokemon. Um, my mom got me a starter deck when we were going to the beach when I was like six or something like that. And I got ripped off for my holographic first edition Machamp card at the Books A Million Saturday Pokemon trade thing. I traded it for a Starmie and got made fun of by my friends so bad that I went home and learned to play the game and ended up getting quite good at Pokemon. I, um, I don't, have, have you ever played the game before? I have. I remember that back in the day. So this is really dating myself, but when my brother and I were started playing Magic when it first came out in the early 90s. So <laughs> for us, Magic was actually the first game. But I do remember that 
uh, we got into Yu-Gi-Oh very briefly at some point, and I think we also got ripped off too. But uh, yeah, I do remember. <laughs> We've all been there. So um, there was an Alakazam damage swap deck that I kind of had a, a hand in helping create uh, in the early days of Pokemon. That if you know the rules at all, it didn't play any energy, which was a pretty rare thing, and it decked the opponent out the hard way. And from there, I picked up Yu-Gi-Oh! Because it was just kind of the, well, it, you Pokemon's for kids. I'm supposed to get the big kid game now. <laughs> yeah, level up to Yu-Gi-Oh, right? Yeah, exactly. And then in sixth grade, so at a Yu-Gi-Oh! trading event, someone advertised there was a card store opening up locally, and there just weren't any of those before. And they said they were going to have some Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh cards, rather, and a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament, which was a big deal at the time. There, I just never even heard of a card tournament before. And so I go to this place, and I see it's mostly magic on the walls, and I'm kind of just confused. And after a few months, I ended up learning to play magic, and I was awful. I was god-awful. I mean, I... Had no idea what I was doing. My first FNM, I played a an 80-card mono blue artifact deck and got smushed by Affinity over and over and over. And I didn't realize why Affinity was as busted as it was because in Pokemon, the trainers don't have mana costs. In Yu-Gi-Oh!, the spells and traps don't have mana costs. So I didn't realize how busted free spells were. So I would just get my ass kicked for the third round in a row and they go all right disciple the vault trigger you're dead and i'm like wow your deck's really good i sure got a lot to learn and assumed that was just how magic worked and uh i wasn't really competitive in any games until i graduated high school and i made this sort of conscious decision to go all right well these are fun, but I kind of think if I'm going to get into working instead of going to school, I can't really afford to sink money into this like I did in school. So I need to either get good at these games or I need to sell my stuff and stop wasting money on it. And got very competitive in Yu-Gi-Oh! in a very short amount of time. I was kind of like a, a finance guru in that game and played a little competitive uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! towards the end of me playing the game, but I got, I, I got pretty competitive in, in Magic towards New Phyrexia, and then started grinding, grinding around, uh, Battle for Zendikar. Okay, so when you say that you're a bit of a financial guru in Yu-Gi-Oh!, what does that mean exactly? Like, you became a, a dealer or a trader? Like, you, you learn how to maximize your trades or sales? Like, how does that work? So there's about six months where my job was just peddling Yu-Gi-Oh cards out of the back of my car. Uh, I wrote for a website that you can probably do some research if you know my dead name and find it. I don't really... Oh, sorry, just, just, for, just for people who may not get it, can you define what a dead name is? Yeah, uh, a dead name is the name I went by before I transitioned. I was assigned male at birth. Emma Handy is not... It ain't the name my mama gave me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but um, I'm not really proud of the articles and don't really want to share it as a result, at least here. Um, make people do a little bit of legwork if they're gonna, if they want to dig that up. But uh, I wrote articles about price specking and strategy. And uh, in about six months, let me think, it was about August, of a year that I don't want to disclose to March of a of the following year, I made about sixty thousand dollars just peddling Yu-Gi-Oh cards. That beats working in construction or at some call center, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I actually that was after construction, before call center. I um, the construction job I actually liked a lot. Uh, believe it or not. I know that sounds silly, but it, it just kind of feels rewarding to come home after a long day of work and feel tired. Like, it really just feels like you earned your money, so to speak. And it was a very easy... Saying easy job is not correct, but it was very... There weren't office politics or anything, and the money was pretty okay. It was just, you came there at nine. They told you what you had to get done. 
and it had to be done by five o'clock. If it was not done by five o'clock, you got fired on the spot. And at the end of the day Friday, if you were not fired, they everyone would line up and they would give you four $100 bills. And it was all under the table and they did not ask any questions about you. And it was, I don't know, it was pretty nice. But I also was young and strong enough to actually get everything done in time. So it's obviously I'm going to hold that opinion. Right. And it, it sounds like it's kind of a, an honest job. Like you just go in, you use your hands, you literally get something done. And it's very black and white. It's not office politics. It's not like information work as we do a lot of these kinds of jobs these days. So it's very, it's very defined what you have to do, right? Exactly. There was there was a contractor, that guy was the boss, and then there was everybody else, and they got told what they had to build that day, be it put up some walls in a certain building or build a bunch of furniture for another building. Uh, I ended up not working for them anymore because they were based out of Charlotte and they just completed the job that they were doing in Asheville. And I wasn't willing to relocate to Charlotte. It was a good job, but it wasn't a relocate a few hours away. Good job. Yeah, I am curious, though. You chose to kind of deal cards, and you did that for about six months. Had you not considered continuing to do that? Or maybe another way to ask it is, maybe there was there something about that that you didn't enjoy doing long-term? So there was kind of a problem where... What's the best way to phrase this? All right, so let me go ahead and just lay this out up front. I used to be a much worse person than I am now. I think a lot of what I'm about to talk about is incredibly immoral, and by the end of it, will I think it will be very obvious why I hold that opinion. Uh, so a lot of what I was doing in Yu-Gi-Oh, there was a an era where there was not a specific website or price guide that people went by for prices. So a lot of times it was, it kind of just came down to reputation. Like, all right, well, that person is probably the smartest person in the room with prices. Their prices are probably correct. And what that meant is it was very easy to take advantage of people, including just buying cards from people and then buy listing them for more than that, which, you know, buy list prices on already aren't great. So if you're buying for less than that, that's pretty rough. Um, I actually kind of killed a lot of the Yu-Gi-Oh scene in Western North Carolina, Northern South Carolina, and Eastern Tennessee because I would buy someone, say, $1,000 collection for $100, sell it online for, you know, $500, and people would come buy the cards from me because they're, I'm selling them for half of what they're worth. But then the person I bought the cards from, they're done with Yu-Gi-Oh. They don't have a collection anymore, and they have this $100 that when they go to buy back in, they realize they can't get anything close to what they had for that $100, so they stay gone. So it wasn't sustainable because eventually I was just buying people out of the game for heinously low amounts of money, and in entire local areas would just stop playing the game in the course of like two or three months. But do you really think that you single-handedly had such an impact on the community that was local to that area? There were like four people who were buying cards for me, so it wasn't just me, but um, I'm sorry, I cut you off, you were saying? No, actually, that, that kind of answers it. So you actually had a, you were scaling it out, like you actually had a, a small group that was you were working with or working for you kind of thing. Right. Yeah, we, we had a little team, and um, really only three of us were really trading very much. One of them was just kind of there because they were so good at the game that they would enter whatever tournament we were going to and usually turn a profit, even if it was only a slight one. Um, but, and, you know, it, it's not that we did it single-handedly necessarily, but there's kind of a, what's the way to phrase this? A catalyst might not do something by itself, but it is the first domino. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, there's a point where if a community is 25 players 
and fit in 60% of them show up to locals each week, a different 60%. Um, eventually, if you take out five of those, instead of 15, it's going to be 12 people. And if you take out another five, then it's 15. So only nine of those people are showing up and that's barely enough for an eight person tournament. And so at that point, people who do well are barely getting enough prizes to warrant their entry fee which means that they're less incentivized to start co to keep coming, which means that they're gonna, you know, go to the mall instead or spend money on magic cards instead of Yu-Gi-Oh cards because people don't get ripped off in that game like they do in Yu-Gi-Oh and so on and so forth. Okay, but let me play devil's advocate here, Emma. I, I would argue that that is actually not immoral because it's actually the player's responsibility or the collector's responsibility to figure out what they should be paying for cards because I have to assume that that's happening at a time where the internet is around and it's not like the old days of like price guide magazines like Scry or Inquest you know if you go really back in time and really dating myself <laughs> yeah. you know that it's not like that so people people can do their own research and they some people some kid might actually need the hundred dollars instead of getting even though it's worth a thousand dollars maybe they just want to liquidate their collection or they feel like they want instant gratification of the hundred dollars cash in their hands so wouldn't you also say just as a devil's advocate wouldn't i i don't know if that's exactly immoral it's 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 not like you're 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 stealing the cards from them not literally um i so a lot of what you're saying is how I justified it to myself at the time. Uh, like, everyone agreed to everything. It was all over the table. But I, I sure wasn't telling the truth about what a fair price for their cards were, right? Like, I, I think there's a point where capitalizing on someone's ignorance to that degree is immoral. But you're not doing it anymore where you stop doing it after half a year. What was the wake-up call for you? Like, what... Was there some kind of realization that happened? Yeah, I uh, was doing more dollars in Yu-Gi-Oh than my local store was each week. And I almost got banned for it because I would just sit out in the parking lot and sell cards to people. And I heard an employee complaining about their numbers and my numbers were higher than theirs. And that was kind of the point where I was like, huh, I'm doing more than a store in their own parking lot. That's kind of cool and then I thought about it more and I was like actually there's probably something wrong with this because I'm not I'm not full of myself to the point where I think that's necessarily a good thing does that make sense like it kind of shows that some some rule is being broken so I mean there's still a kind of a realization moment there and did any of the players that you dealt with like did they confront you in any way did they come back to you in in any way i'm just trying to figure out if that was also a part of it or not i mean i've had people chase me out of a convention center before because they knew how much money i had with me you're like when you're a floor trader you tend to have a bunch of cash on you um and i've had situations where there was a six samurai deck that I sold the core to someone before a tournament for about $500. And then at the end of the tournament, they wanted to sell the exact same cards back to me and I gave them like $60. And there's also a point where cards are worth more before the tournament than they are after the tournament, right? So I, I think there's a point where you should like expect for prices of cards to be lower, especially buy rates when people are trying to leave the venue. But that's, I, I think we can agree that that's a pretty, pretty drastic extreme. Yeah. And, and how did it make you feel? I mean, because you had to work pretty hard in the construction job just to get $400 at the end of the week. And the money at this point for you seemed to come in very or relatively quite easier because you could make that in a matter of, I don't know, minutes or hours. So how did that make you feel? Did it make you feel powerful did it make you feel strange i'm just trying to figure out what was going through your mind at the time um honestly it was a pretty depressing time for me so i really didn't feel much um i've i so 
I will concede that it is completely self-diagnosed, but I am under the impression that I have struggled with depressive tendencies for most of my life, and that was kind of a low point for me, at least in terms of mental health. It, it's not the worst things I've ever been, and we might touch on that later, knowing the nature of the podcast, but um, I really didn't feel a whole lot. You kind of have to... I don't know, I think it is immoral to do the things I was doing, which kind of shows I had gone to some lengths to numb myself emotionally to things. And that, does, it, that doesn't usually limit itself to lows. It also tends to kind of dull the highs as well. I see. And since we're on this topic, for the depressive tendencies, it's always hard to look at oneself in the mirror and go back in time, but you said, was it around this time or was there something that, let me ask it this way. Is it something that you felt like you've always had since you were a kid or was there some, were there some specific things in, in your life that may have made it worse or may have made it more, more heightened or highlighted? Okay. So, um, related to my being trans, I was very confused and very upset a lot of the time when I was younger and kind of struggled a lot with my identity because I felt like, you know, I, I presented as male until I was 24 years old and, or 23 years old, 20, early twenties. Um, and for most of my life, basically I always was under the impression that I was a girl until the world kind of didn't let me be one. Does that make sense? Like I would try to like play patty cakes and hopscotch, you know, this is a little being like gender role uh, normative, <laughs> so to speak. But um, I would try to do those things and then get made fun of by the girls and boys would like, you know, punch me or whatever. And like I learned very quickly that is not what I was supposed to do. Um, and there were some things that happened with my biological father where I did not come out to him, but he reacted very negatively to people who were, you know, assigned male at birth and then tried to be women when they were older. Um, and I think that is about when I started to realize that not that something was wrong with me, but that things were going to be very hard. I think that might be the best way to phrase it. Um, as in, I was not going to get to be, f feel fulfilled in the ways that I wanted to. Like, I wouldn't be able to do certain things. I wouldn't be able to dress certain ways. I would be expected to act ways that didn't make me comfortable. Um, I, I, I think that's a lot of it. And that started about when I was... 13 or 14. The first time um, I ever um, self-harmed, for example, is I think I was 13 or 14, maybe 13, when um, something, you know, an email went around about um, what was effectively a trans beauty pageant in Japan that um, my biological father sent around. They were like those chain emails back in the early 2000s with jokes. And it would, it talked about the contestants and it, he labeled it, hey, I thought you'd, you'd really enjoy this. And uh, halfway through, I start getting excited and thinking, oh my God, he gets it, he gets it, this is so good. Oh my God, I'm so happy that I have a parent who like knows this. And um, at the end of it, it goes, but here's the twist. These are all actually men. And it kind of just punched me in the stomach and well, okay, so at the time I thought, oh, wow, these are people like me. This is amazing. I, I can, you know, grow up how I want to be. I can be perceived as I want to be perceived. And I brought it up to him later that night and he looks at me and smiles and starts laughing. He goes, oh my God, I know. Weren't they fucking disgusting? And I just like then realized that the email had been making fun of them the whole time. And it just like, I think that was sort of the beginning of me dealing with a lot of self-loathing issues and um, I don't know, emotional 
um, distress, we'll say, as a sort of a chronic condition rather than something that came and went. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you always knew who you were, but the world or the people around you would, would not make that easy. Yeah, exactly. And there are a lot of respects where I think if I had been born a cis woman, I would have still been a bit of a tomboy. Like I liked Power Rangers when I was little, for example, and I think I still would have liked Power Rangers. But I think there are other things that would have been very different. Like I wouldn't have been like, you know, had rocks thrown at me for trying to do things with the girls. I wouldn't have been called or, you know, had talking to with my teacher about the inappropriateness of like, a line of girls holding hands, but then me also on the end holding hands with them and skipping down the hallway and being told that that's like inappropriate touching for me, but not for them. And those types of situations that were just really confusing or painful to me as a kid. Yeah, uh, I, I can't even begin to imagine that. But yeah, I think society definitely expects us to fit into these uh, boxes, as it were, right? And and maybe it's maybe it's not even the fact that we're not able to accept people outside of the box, but it's just that it seems to be the the easiest quote unquote way is to act out in some kind of uh, confused or 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 vicious way because we don't understand the other side of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think that for a lot of people, it's that there's this sort of roadmap where this is what they did in order to be successful or to be happy, right? Like to use um like the the because for so long I was treated as my parents son to use the father son thing as an example the a, a father gets to where they did by you know acting like a man or whatever and making decisions that fall in line with being a man and doing man stuff and so there's this sort of assumption that because there's someone who is born like them um they perceive it as, all right, my kid should be doing things similar to what I did because I was able to get to the point I am in life doing that and to be successful. So if they want to be successful, they also should follow this. And there's almost this sort of social contract that follows that, right? Like people that we, like boys grow up to be men and women or girls grow up to be women and th this is how it works because that's how it always has worked and that is how people have grown up to have fulfilling lives so that's the way that that's what we should encourage which means discouraging things that don't fit that paradigm yeah it's kind of like uh damn it this is how it's always been done don't deviate from the script yeah exactly the plan's good we're sticking to the plan don't mess up the plan so through this process or through not process, but, you know, through growing up, what about the other members of your family? Did they understand what you were going through or did you feel like they tried to understand, but maybe it was difficult for them? I worked very hard to cover it up. Uh, I was a very sneaky kid, like a very sneaky kid. Um, my like biological father was under the assumption I had never had a drink until my 21st birthday when he like made me stay up, uh, you know, until like come over and drink with him and all that. And he's like, all right, I'm glad we can, you know, have a beer as men or whatever it is. And um, despite the fact that I had been drinking for, you know, almost a decade at that point, um, I would like you know, this is kind of a, a trans trope or what have you, but whenever nobody else was home or when it was really late at night, I would like take clothes out of the hamper and do what at the time I thought was cross-dressing and I would kind of make myself feel better that way. But I never talked to any of my family members about it other than, you know, watching shows here and there or things to that effect that might have been more in line with we'll, we'll say femininity what about outside of your family did you have any people that you confided in or did you keep this basically all to yourself uh it was it was basically all to myself i uh the first person i ever came out to was in 2014 it was my uh best friend uh named jake we've I uh, played on teams together at a few opens. We've been roommates for a long time. He's 
probably the best person in my life and is that's a lot of why he was the first person I ever came out to but um before that I I think the closest I ever came to telling anybody was I told an old roommate of mine that I uh, was not exclusively a heterosexual man and he was like oh so like bisexual and I said yeah yeah and then chickened out and didn't tell him Gosh, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine just living 20 years plus of your life without being able to tell people how you really feel, you know, like how inhibiting or restrictive or painful that must be. Uh, I'm not trying to trivialize things. I, I, I just... You're not trivializing things at all. Yeah, like I, I really feel like that must have been incredibly difficult. Like, I, I don't, like, I'm just trying to put it in perspective, right? Like, I might be complaining about, I don't know, the, some food I ate today or, or my last job or something, but this, this is, like, on a whole nother level. So I, I don't even know how you begin to, to deal with that. Um, you kind of fabricate a personality. I mean, not everyone does, but the way that I handled it was in a lot of ways just kind of did whatever I thought that I was supposed to do because I, you know, got beat up when I was a kid and was conditioned to think that, you know, I I had to learn how to exhibit behavior that I would be rewarded for. Does that make sense? I, I know that's kind of an, an oddly specific way to phrase things, but... Well, yeah, I mean, you don't want to get you don't want to get physically harmed, right? Because there actually is the the possibility of that or even emotionally abused or, you know, even somebody, you know, words also hurt a, a great deal in, the, in, in, circum, in certain circumstances. So you want to have pain avoidance, right? I mean, isn't, that's, pretty, that's pretty understandable for any human being, I would say. Exactly. And a lot of it is, you, I, I kind of learned, all right, so girl stuff is bad and I should not do that. But I didn't learn exactly what guy stuff was. So a lot of it was me just kind of feeling out what I was supposed to be doing. So I, I you know, I didn't actually, I, I was almost exclusively into men uh, sexually until, you know, I was a sophomore in high school. And that led to me dating some girls because I thought I was supposed to. My first girlfriend, for example, is someone who I really wanted to be friends with and felt really close with and felt a an emotional connection but not romantic interest in. But because she was, you know, kind of the one one of the few girls in our friend group you know how high school is. A lot of times that's kind of assumed they're going to date someone in the friend group. Because we were close, I ended up feeling pressured by a lot of my guy friends to end up trying to be in a relationship with her. And that ended up kind of tainting and defining the rest of the time that we were close. Um, and then I dated someone else because I found out they liked me. And I just thought, well, I, I guess that's how things work. If a girl likes you, you're supposed to, you know, uh, you're supposed to ask her out because you might get to touch her tit or something. Yeah, again, there's a kind of script that is that is in motion, and it's very difficult for the individual to deviate from that, right? Yes, exactly. So when you were having these relationships earlier on in your life, did the other person or other people, did they kind of understand what was going on, or did you still feel like you were in a in a relationship with them, but you also tried to not disclose certain things about yourself? I I mean, I, I didn't disclose things with any of these people pertaining to my gender or anything. Um, the, the first girl was someone who we ended up breaking up after like a week or something because I like didn't, I wasn't affectionate. We didn't kiss, I didn't really hold her hand. We hugged, but that was about it and she just kind of said, yeah, it doesn't really feel like you're trying to be my boyfriend. And, you know, I couldn't tell her that is true. <laughs> um, and then the second partner, after we made out a bunch for a couple of months because, you know, high school stuff, um, we ended up breaking up when on 
Christmas, I think, that year. And she just said, yeah, I, I just feel like you're much closer with this girl you used to date than me. And, you know, no matter what I did, I just couldn't convince her that it wasn't me just trying to be friends with this other girl. And uh, because I wasn't really into the relationship in the first place, it, it, it was a pretty tough sell, right? Definitely. You are now very open and public about being queer and also being trans. So what exactly was sort of the turning point for you? Maybe this is too simplistic. Maybe it's not a turning point. Maybe it's a multitude of factors. But just tell me how you went from like really a self-repression to, you know, opening up. There must have been some events that that really helped catalyze it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um I'm trying to think of the best way to, to start it. Uh, so 2013-ish, my partner at the time went out of town and for a long time. She uh, got a, an internship with Disney, and I couldn't afford to move to Orlando at the time. And uh, as a result, I ended up having a bunch of alone time and had time to learn about what trans people were. I, it involves surfing the internet. So I saw Caitlyn Jenner in tabloids and started to think, wow, that's a lot how I feel. That's kind of eerie. And bef you know, before that, I didn't really have a word for trans people. It was always just those confused men who want breast implants or those, you know, uh, those faggots trying to be... Um, trying to be women or whatever it is. Or, you know, those gay guys who are so desperate for a man, they'll be a woman. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a respected identity. It was something very derogatory and you didn't, those weren't quote unquote real people. It was just, you know, that weirdo. I, I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense. But, um, so the Caitlyn Jenner thing started to happen and then I learned about Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black. You know, she was on the cover of a big magazine, I think it was Vogue, maybe? And it was a really big deal that a trans woman was on the front cover of that magazine. And uh, Feline Longmore was starting to break out on the SCG tour at the time, the open series playing her high tide deck. And she got a, a an article written about her on... Oh God, it was a gaming website. I'm not, I'm not positive which one, but got an article written about her and trans people were starting to show up and be known by people. Uh, and a lot of the things I did in life kind of lined up with people who suffered from gender dysphoria and I was afraid people would find out. And it was something I'd worked to keep under wraps for a very long time. The Southeast is not very kind to trans people. I thought if people found out, my life as I knew it would be over. All this work I had put into making this identity of who I used to be would just be for nothing. And I started having a lot of panic attacks just in public and at home, anywhere imaginable. And they, they got pretty bad. Um, sorry for the, the pauses, it's starting to get a little heavier. Um, then the cons of Tarkir pre-release uh, came around, and because of a confluence of wild events, including the only other employee in the store having to go to a different city very far away for an exam that determined if he could graduate from college, to the owner having to go to the hospital, I ended up having to work the entire cons of Tarkir pre-release by myself. Uh, that meant opening at 11 a.m. Friday, closing at about 5.30 a.m. Saturday morning, then coming back and opening Saturday morning at 11 a.m., and then closing at Sunday morning at 4 a.m., and then opening at noon on Sunday, and then closing at about 2 a.m. Monday morning. So it was a pretty absurd amount of hours. Um, I work all of the Friday night and that pre-release. And then Saturday, I do it again. And I'm just, I'm having a hard time keeping it together. I'm pretty exhausted at this point. Um, my panic attacks are really bad. Um, 
and I end up taking, um, after, after everything wrapped up Saturday, I end up taking a gun home and deciding that I am done and I'm going to try to kill myself. Um, I think that is an easier out than trying to be openly trans. I don't want to deal with things anymore. It didn't feel like I had anybody I could be honest with or talk to about it. And without any kind of solutions, I kind of just figured the way I was living wasn't a way to live, but the other way wasn't a way to live either. All right, we've reached the end of part one of my conversation with Emma Handy. Please go on to the next episode for the second and final part. We'll see you there.